So we're here at ValueX and I've taken some minutes out to talk to some of our participants and we have Jeff Hendrickson with us here and I'm super excited you've traveled over from the US and I think that the first place I wanted you to tell uh, the listeners is uh, how you ended up finding yourself in Oxford and how you ended up finding yourself at ValueX. Yeah, well, Guy, thank you for having me. I, it's a, Every year we come and, and, and it's, it's just better than the last. Um, so I ended up in Oxford in 2014. I took uh, an executive education course uh, on valuation, and it was through the lens of private equity um, and M&A mainly, which is an area I wanted to get better at. And I went and spent a week in Oxford and just had this amazing experience. And on the way out, I grabbed uh, the brochure for the executive MBA program. And I read the brochure on the plane ride home, and my wife picks me up at the airport, and I'm like, hey, honey, how would you like to move to Oxford? And she's like, what? And I'm like, I'm going to apply to this program. And if I get in, um, we could go live in Oxford. And she's like, oh, that'd be amazing. So I found out that there was a week left in the application process. So I did all the essays and everything. And I applied. I got invited to interview in December for a program that started in January. So I flew back to Oxford, brought my wife. I interviewed. She fell in love with the place. And so I had like extra pressure in the interview because now my wife wants to, to move here. She's all excited. And uh, so I got in and then we moved over in 2015 in January. And I did, um, it was a two-year program. And I was there for uh, three years actually because I, I got to do some teaching as well. And fell in love with Oxford. Um, you know, living in Europe was a great experience. And it's one of those things in my life that I, it's probably... Those two or th those three years really defined, I think, who I am as a, an investor, who I am as an adult. It was really a, a really great time. So you spent a year lecturing on valuation at mm -hmm. Said Business School at Oxford. Right. So you can say that you and Damodaran are the same thing. <laughs> uh, and he, um, I, I don't know if he would agree. I mean, he's a he's like the valuation guru. But yeah, I mean, I taught uh, valuation um, to to graduates, and if you want to learn about something, teach it that really forces you to learn. So I feel myself slightly envious of you because I've not taught valuation in that way. Mm -hmm. And we know that many of the world's greatest investors uh, taught in, in either professional capacity or not. And so right. you've taken that path. Uh, perhaps you can share with me and the listener uh, what you learned, how you approached the challenge, right. uh, what the students were like, uh, what you feel is un unfinished business, if you like, what the, maybe there are some things that are not good about the experience of teaching valuation. So when I started off, it was teaching, um, I mean, the, the, I taught basically DCF, M&A, M&A like merger modeling, and then um, LBO analysis. So for me, I'd always been uh, well-versed in DCF, and there's a lot of nuance to doing DCFs that um, at a graduate level, you know, course you really get into, which is cool. Um, LBO modeling was something that I had not done, but I started learning a lot about, and not that I'm a private equity guy, but I found that if I modeled, um, public companies through the lens of private equity and kind of try to look at what, uh, private buyers look at and learn how to really model and do valuations that way, it made me a lot better public market investor. So I thought it was a great experience, um, to be able to do that with regards to teaching it, you realize so I'll give you a story. Like we, um, we used to give valuation assignments to, to a class and it would be, you know, you'd have a handful of inputs if you're doing a DCF and you'd want to see what 
kind of valuations people came up with. And we had specific questions and we had an answer in mind on what we think the right answer would be. And the interesting thing was, is we would have the, the class work like independently. And when they worked independently, if you looked at all the answers, on average, they were spot on, right? Because you know, everybody's guess is the right answer plus some error term. And if those errors are not correlated, then they kind of cancel each other out. And if you just average all the guesses of the students, um, it was amazing how efficient they were at valuing something. Then when you would allow them to work together, though, and maybe you threw a little bias, oftentimes their average would get really, really skewed. Um, and what that taught me was that was a little microcosm for a market. And what I learned about teaching valuation is if something's going to get mispriced, it's because like-minded people are, are all wrong, essentially, and, and their, their errors get correlated. And so to me, like when I look at markets and I look for inefficiency, that example still really um, defines how I look at stock markets because teaching, you get like this little microcosm to see how people really behave. And these are smart students. These are very sophisticated Oxford students. And, you know, you could see how their valuation could, could go really wrong. That's, um, that is yeah. an incredibly powerful idea that uh, I just want to pause on and unpack a little bit. So I have in my mind a TED talk of an Israeli guy called, his first name is Lior, and I'm blanking on his second name. We actually brought a bull or a cow, I don't remember which it was, mm -hmm. onto the stage. And he had the audience estimate the weight of the bull. And uh, the, um, the aggregate of the audience's estimate was so close to the actual weight of the bull. And you're effectively telling the same story yeah. of valuation when it's done by individuals mm -hmm. but that the minute the individuals get into groups they convince the groups convince themselves of reality that takes their value excuse their rea reality in one right. way or another and it seems to me that uh it's a very very strong basis for saying that investment decisions should be taken by individuals not committees Absolutely. I, I think any committee made investment decision is going to really be, um, uh, it's, it, it's going to be problematic. The other thing that, I mean, the efficient market hypothesis, like what you learn in graduate school, like it's such an elegant theory. And I went through a phase of my life where I didn't, maybe I didn't believe it totally, but, but what I learned is it's really all based on the idea of crowd wisdom, which is the idea that the average of the guesses on the weight of a bull or whatever is, is really accurate. And there are times when that is absolutely true. I think there are times when the stock market gets it right. And in the long run, it has to get it right, because if it didn't in the long run, then what are we doing, right? Um, but, you know, to go back just to teaching the valuation, I mean, I think the big benefit I got teaching is, one, you really learn it well when you have to explain it to somebody else. Um, but two, when you see mistakes that are made and how and why people make those mistakes, I just think it gives you good insight into how the human mind works. Yeah. Um, and so that was probably my biggest takeaway from teaching, um, was really learning how, um, <laughs> how investors can get things right and how they can get them wrong. And how, how intelligent human minds, as you said, these are not, there's this idea that was expressed to me by a friend a long time ago, oh, people in the market are idiots. But I don't think it's ever smart to assume that people in the market are idiots. And yeah. certainly the graduates or the people you were teaching mm -hmm. were not idiots. So I want to move on to, um, so ValueX is about investment ideas worth sharing. Come to the event uh, with at least one investment idea that you're willing to share from the stage. Mm -hmm. 
And I should tell everyone that uh, Jeff's idea almost, well, it did surprise me because the last time I had interaction with Jeff was with a very interesting company that I understand he no longer owns called Acacia Research. And you may get into that, but actually the idea that you shared from the stage is in uh, polar opposite to that. And maybe standing on one leg in the about very sort of like you, you've got about three or four minutes to do this, which is actually approximately the time that you had yeah, on the stage. Right. Take the listener through uh, why you no longer own Acacia Research right? and um, uh, what you shared on the stage, which is really quite profound. So I'll, I'll, I'll share what I did on the stage and then I'll finish with Acacia if that's okay. Um, so the idea that I shared on the stage was I was always taught that there are three ways to get an edge in investing. You can have an analytical edge, you can have an informational edge, or you can have a behavioral edge. And so the argument that I made last night is that two of those edges, the analytical edge and the informational edge, are very difficult to get today. I won't say impossible, because I think you can still get them in certain situations, but so, there, okay, the, there's the democratization of information. Um, I call it the Tegas effect. And Tegas is a great product, um, but it's amazing to me how much information almost anybody can have access to now. Uh, it used to be when Buffett was doing wide mode investing, when he first made the shift, um, uh, when he uh, bought Berkshire Hathaway and started looking at moats, just ordering a 10K, having it mailed to your house, reading it, thinking deeply about the economics of the business and the moat, that conferred a big competitive advantage because not a lot of people did that. Economic value added as a concept wasn't even taught in business school then, or if it was, it was not really well known. And Buffett, he was using all these concepts that that just weren't, I think, as widely known. Today, even, you know, as, as I said, even C students in business school understand economic value added really well. They all have access to information. They're all looking for wide moat businesses. And I'm sure you and I'm sure the viewers like have had this experience where they find an amazing business, but it's just like damn it, it's so expensive. And so the argument that I made was that really, if you don't think that analytical and or analytical and informational edges are possible, then you're left with the behavioral edge. And I talked about this idea of the loser's game. And the loser's game is an article written by um, this guy's last name is Ellis in the Journal of Finance, I think it was in the 1970s. And he defines basically a winner's game as any outcome that's determined by the action of a winner. So professional tennis is a winner's game because it's the crushing shot that the, the, the professional makes that wins it for him. So it's a winner's game. Amateur tennis is a loser's game because amateur tennis players, the outcome's typically determined by the shot the loser makes, who duffs it into the net. So the argument he makes is that basically the markets have become a loser's game. And if that's the case, what he says is you should focus not on getting an edge in your buy decision, but in your sell decision. And so to me, that's that behavioral edge. So if you want to own a compounder, I don't know if you can get an edge knowing more about Amazon than Nick Sleep. But what I think you can do is not sell it if you believe in the long-term power of the business, which is not always easy to do, especially if, if, I mean, how many people have owned Amazon since it IPO'd and never sold? Like, we like to tell that story, but that's very difficult. But that's where your edge is, I think. It's behavioral. And so that was the, the pitch I made last night. And then I also just showed how a basic cheap uh, price-to-book strategy still does really well. And does it? And it does really well, if I understood you correctly, uh, because you're being forced by the model of buying the cheapest decile of stocks mm -hmm. 
uh, to sort of, I think I think you used a four-letter word beginning with S and ending with T. Yes. You can uh, share exactly what that word is because I can't remember what it was. <laughs> and and then, you know, just as you're about to fall in love with this damn thing, yeah. uh, because it's gone up so much, you're forced to sell it and buy another piece of... Yeah. That strategy, so buying the cheapest decile on price to book since 1996, I think we did since 96 was the study that we did. And we put that together right before ValueX. I just wanted to do it just to pit, just to show to you guys. Um, I think that Kager's it is over nineteen percent, um, and you're owning a pile. Um, I mean, I'm going to be honest that it's, it's a pile of dog shit. I mean, the companies down there. Oh are, yes, now I remember. That was the word. It had three letters in front but of it. But it's got dog. gold in. The, but there's gold in there. Um, yeah. And if you actually really look at the companies that are in there, it's it's really ugly stuff. Um, but you own them in size. Like I mean, there's 350 names roughly, on average, in that basket. And you're basically, the way I describe it is, what, I'm not really even owning companies then. I mean, I guess you are. But what I'm really trying to do is take a permanent long position in human misjudgment. And that's kind of how I view it. And it yeah. works if you do it. And a question that I had, but I censored myself because we have such limited time. Mm -hmm. You know, for the viewer's interest, we, we try to get through close to 100 presentations in two days. Yeah. And so each presentation is limited to about five minutes. And um, so we kind of move through a lot of people. And the benefit is that every person gets their ideas exposed, but you don't get to have a long discussion over it. Um, my experience in seeking to own net nets in Japan is that the process of managing the actual portfolio with, I mean, in my case, it was far fewer than 350 positions, mm -hmm. requires a different setup. I mean, if yeah. you buy a... Uh, index fund that owns the index 500 positions, there's quite a, some sophisticated portfolio management techniques to yep. keep the portfolio balanced into where you should be. But if you're doing that, for example, for the cheapest decile mm -hmm. by some measure, when you're actually implementing that, that is an enormous amount yeah. of work. What is? So how did you have to change your institutional setup, your internal operations in order to make that happen? So, I mean, the just the price to book strategy is not one we're actively running at the moment. Um, but we do have a quantitative strategy that holds a, a, it's not, not 350, but I think right now we have just under 80 positions. So it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of work because it's a lot of buying and selling, but you, uh, we use interactive brokers and so they have some pretty good tools on there. So if you wanted to go equal weight 350 companies, you could actually do it fairly easily, but it is a lot of work. And then keeping the, you know, we, that strategy works best if you equal weight. So depending on how often you want to rebalance, there is a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of trading and there's costs associated with that. Um, but the costs are not so expensive as to, um, make the strategy not, not profitable. I mean, it's still, uh, when, when you're compounding at 19%, um, you know, there's a lot of room in there for a little slippage uh, and to still do really well. But yes, you're right. It is a different way to invest. Um, and it requires a bit of, uh, yeah, a, a bit of a different setup. So a, a sort of a closing question and an opportunity to take your life from discovering this program at Oxford mm -hmm. and living in Oxford. Um, one day I wake up and I discover that you've moved back to the United States to have children. And I know so you've set up a firm. No kids yet, though. Oh, I see. Yeah. Forgive me. Maybe to start a family. Forgive me. And um, in a certain way, I feel like there's a parallel to me where I used to live in the US and one day I woke up and wanted to move back to Europe. Right. I thought that you could just take the listener through 
Uh, we started off with you discovering Oxford, living in Oxford for a number of years, discovering yep. Value X, of course, which yes. draws you back. Thank you for that. But tell us how your life has unfolded since you moved back to the US, what your choices were, why you decided to do that. You could have stayed in England forever after. Right, right. And uh, what's in store? Yeah, I. so we live, uh, my wife and I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is a wonderful community. I mean, it's university town, University of Virginia is there. Um, so part of the move back was uh, running a fund in the U.S. is easier than running one in the U.K. Um, so that's part of it. That was not the hundred. That was not a hundred percent of it, though. Um, you know, I would say that after three years of living abroad, and I love the U.K. Deep down, I realized I'm an American. Um, I had an experience where. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're a follower of Major League Baseball, but uh, I grew up in Houston, and the Houston Astros are my team. And there's a bit of controversy around the team, which we don't have to get into. But in 2017, they won the World Series, which is a really big deal. And I was watching the World Series from um, the UK, and like it was weird because the games would come on at one or two in the morning, and I'd have nobody to sit there and share it with. Like nobody followed baseball, and it just I was like I really missed being in the U.S. and that sounds kind of corny maybe but it just I realized that as much as I loved living abroad that I'm an American at heart and I just I wanted to spend the rest of my life in the U.S. and uh, and so that's that's probably more than anything I mean taxes are better yes uh, the, fun, the funds uh, it's easier to run a fund in the U.S. it's not um uh, is an exempt reporting advisor. It's it's less costly than than uh, um, running one in the UK. Um, but at the end of the day, I wanted yeah I wanted to go home. It's such an interesting idea uh, because that was exactly uh, exactly the polar op the the mirror image of my choice. And funny that you should talk about baseball, in that um, we would go to baseball games from time to time in New York. Uh, having lived for a couple of years in Boston, mm-hmm. I asked myself whether my team was the Boston Red Sox or New York Yankees. That's a big decision. To make. It is a big decision, and uh, I'll never forget uh, somebody, a member of our team, who has a way, and she's certainly a Yankees fan, of saying that um, Boston Red Sox suck, suck. But it's a different way of saying it. it's a kind of with a New York accent, right? But also coming to the realization that I wanted to grow up, I wanted to have my family be in a place where um, they were fans of British and European soccer right. teams and yeah. um, where there was that, those sensibilities. And it's amazing that that's an, a choice over identity, which is actually really important. So I'll tell you a quick story just to follow up there. I uh, met a fund manager um, that is a U.S. manager. He lived in the U.K. and he spent his whole life in the U.K., and he was a really nice gentleman, and we had a conversation once, and he said, so you're going to stay here permanently? And I said, I don't, I don't know. And he said, well, let me tell you something. I'm an American. I live here permanently. I love it. But there's something you need to remember. If you have kids here, they're going to have British accents. They are going to want to play uh, you know, soccer, football. They're not going to want to play baseball. Cricket. They're going to play cricket. And he's like, that's something you need to think about. And that always stuck with me. And not that there's anything wrong with that, Absolutely. but like it, it – it was an influencing decision for sure. For your interest, my children have grown up. My eldest daughter was six when we moved to Europe. And um, they have, to my mind, very clearly American accents. Right. But that, to say, you know, their mother was born in the United States. But um, I guess closing question. Yeah. 
Do you think that uh, your decision making as the manager of funds within Thorpe Abbotts, which although it's named after a British village, I learned mm -hmm. from Jeff, is very firmly based in the United States. Do you think your decision making is better, worse or neutral as a result of making that move? And what have you been doing to make the environment the best possible for your decision making? So in terms of the decision making, whether or not um, living in the US or the UK, I, I don't think so. I think I think I would be doing the same decisions um, living in either place. What kind of environment do I set up? I think in, I used to hear people say this and I used to laugh like, oh, it's such a canned MBA response. But at, now that I've run a business, I realize it's not. And the response is you want to have the right culture. And I think that culture is a really uh, over-discussed topic sometimes. But what I've learned for the type of investing we do is the culture at our office, and there's, there's four of us total doing this, really allows us, um, when we're talking about behavioral, quantitative behavioral strategies, you own a lot of really ugly, out-of-favor stuff. And if you don't have the right culture to do it, it's hard to do. And so for us, humor is a big part of that culture. And there's a, there's a, there's, I'll give you an example. There's a line in Moneyball where uh, they're making a decision on some players. And like, there's a player that they mention, and somebody's like, I've never even heard of this guy. What are you talking about? And uh, Brad Pitt goes, sounds like an Oakland A already. <laughs> and we have that line. So I'm like, what company came in today? And they'll give me the name of the company. I'm sounds like an Oakland A already. Cause <laughs> it's got the really ugly situations. And so if you don't have this humor around owning really ugly situations, they're difficult to own. And so the culture that we have is one of, um, of having a very humorous culture to the types of stuff we buy when you're buying. I mean, we own a lot of little bitty positions and really beaten up stuff. And in the aggregate, it does very well. But any one idea, you know, it might go up 4x or it might go to zero. And if you don't have the right mentality to handle that, then you won't do it. And so my advice would be bringing some humor in really helps. I have to take this shot at you know one culture one language divided by a common culture or something one um uh i didn't know americans had humor but leave that <laughs> aside that that was a cheap We'd, shot uh, yeah but um so if somebody's wants to be in touch with you uh uh what is the best way to find you yeah uh, so our website thorpeabbotscapital.com um and and then i'm just jeff at thorpeabbotscapital.com and we have a lot of stuff on the website uh, talks about our philosophy and and uh, and then if people reach out, um, I can also send like uh, old shareholder letters. We uh, um, have quite uh, quite a lot that I can go I can share and they can learn more that way. Jeff, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for making the journey out. Thank you've, you. You've enriched uh, ValueX and you enrich our community and especially despite the fact that you've moved back to the U.S. Uh, you enrich it even more actually. And I'll leave you with the last word. <laughs> no, well, guy, I. Uh, I think having, I mean, I think 2017 was the first one I came to. And, um, you know, we always say that MBA programs are great because you really get this powerful network and a community around your MBA program. And I feel like I got lucky twice because I came to Oxford and I have my MBA cohort, but then I got to go to ValueX and I have my ValueX cohort. And like, uh, everybody here is great. And I've made um, some really great long-term like friends just out, not professionally, yes, but actually just personal friends that, that, um, that have come through this network, um, that have, you know, rich, enriched my life in many ways. And so to create something like that, um, is, is amazing. And so thank you for, uh, for doing it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And thank you for being here. Thanks.